reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. That's on page 1147 of the Church Bible. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know if the Lord's, uh, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more uh, the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at that passage together. Our Father God, please, uh, will you give me clear words so that we can understand together what you're saying this morning in these scriptures? And we pray, our Father, that we would all have humble and soft hearts uh, to be able to receive your words. Uh, we pray, Father, that you'd be doing business with us today. Um, shaping us as the people of God and as individuals in knowing where we stand with you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. The principle um, underlying this section of 1 Corinthians that we're in um, over these few weeks, um, and in fact the principle that stands behind much of the kind of New Testament ethical teaching, um, is the principle that there's something fundamentally different between the Christian and the non-Christian. There's, there's a fundamental distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. Let me explain what I mean. Um, to us, the world, I think, looks something like this. These diagrams are on your handout as well. The world looks something like this. In other words, we're all spread out on a spectrum between um, bad people and good people. Some people are extremely bad, and some people are extraordinarily good, but most of us look somewhere in between. Most of us are clustered in the middle there somewhere. And um, I guess we hope, don't we, that when judgment comes, that the bar of judgment will be somewhere just to the left of us. The bad people will be punished, but we will somehow just, um, just scrape through. I wonder whether you recognise that view of the world. That's what the world looks like, doesn't it? That's what the world looks like. In fact, we could go round and we could try to plot uh, each other where each of us is on the spectrum, uh, or certainly work out where we ourselves are. 
And it's easy to assume that living a Christian life means trying to live further along this end of the spectrum. And if we're honest, uh, some non-Christian people sometimes seem to lead better lives than we do ourselves. We can look at lives of those we admire and we can think, how can someone that good not be saved? And on the other hand, we look at the lives of some Christians and we see their ongoing struggles with sin and we wonder how they can possibly be saved. In fact, maybe we look at ourselves in that way. How can I possibly be saved? Jesus uh, told us that this is what we should expect the world to look like in this present age. He told the parable, maybe you know it, of the wheat and the weeds. He said the reality is that the world today will have sinners and saints all kind of jumbled up and sometimes it's impossible to tell them apart. And yet they will be sorted on the last day. You see, that's what the world looks like. But the underlying spiritual reality of the world is more like this. There are two groups of people, according to Jesus and according to the whole Bible teaching, and they're utterly different. They're called a number of different things in the Bible, but I'm going to use fairly literal translations of the Greek words that come up several times in our passage. They're called the unjust and the holy. Now that might immediately make us feel uncomfortable. It's not language we're used to using. Are we saying that Christians, the holy, are much better people than non-Christians who are called the unjust? Are all non-Christians bad people? What makes us part of one group or the other? Most importantly, is it possible to get from one group to the other? Well, will you just hold on to those questions? They're important questions, but the answers uh, come up towards the end of today's Bible passage. First, we see some of the implications of this principle that all of humanity falls into one of these two distinct groups. This has uh, implications for how we live now as Christian people. Last week we saw in chapter 5 that this principle means that the holy mustn't um, live like the unjust. And if they continue to do so, even after warning and pleading, they need to be treated like the unjust. That's what church discipline is, what we were looking at last week. Treating someone as an outsider to the church for as long as they behave like an outsider. We saw that actually that's good for the sinner themselves, it's good for the rest of the church, and it's good for the watching world. One thing, by the way, that I should have said last week is that church discipline is one of the reasons why it's healthy to be committed to one church in particular. Some people uh, like to dot around between several churches, but one set of church leaders and one church as a whole needs to know that you belong with them. They need to be the one that take responsibility for you and if necessary hold you accountable and actually you have a responsibility to others there. 
Uh, that doesn't stop us dipping in or serving at another church, but it just means it's healthy for everyone to know where your primary commitment is. So this principle of the, the fundamental distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian underpins church discipline. Today we find that it has another set of implications. It means that we mustn't go to the unjust for justice. Last week we saw that Christians have no business judging outsiders. Today we see the flip side. We as Christians mustn't run to outsiders to sort out problems between believers. Can you see that in verse 1 of our reading? We're on page 1147, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly, or literally the unjust? for judgment instead of before the Lord's people. The Lord's people, the older translations say before the saints, that is those who have been sanctified, those who have been made holy. Do you dare going, go running to non-Christian courts rather than sorting out problems between believers in the church? Let's imagine that one member of our church has a problem with another member. Let's say that Shinda has a problem, sorry to pick on you, with Paul, okay? Uh, maybe she sold him a car and it's turned out to be a stinker, all right? Or maybe, or, or, or maybe Paul has said something about Shinda that she thinks is slanderous. Maybe she's put, he's put something on social media uh, and it's shocking. Well, the principle seems to be that they should try and sort out their differences within the family, as it were, rather than go running to the courts. Maybe they should approach a respected member of the church and ask them to mediate between them to try and find the right solution so that they can be reconciled. In the Old Testament, the Israelites had a system uh, of, of uh, people bringing problems and disputes to the elders to get them sorted out within the community of God's people. Moses uh, played that role. Do you remember we saw uh, a while back that Moses played that kind of role within the community of God's people? And it seems like Moses has a similar sort of pattern in mind here. Now I think this will feel very strange to us, won't it? It feels strange to us because we tend to have in our culture quite a low, loose view of church. We think of ourselves as individuals, maybe even as consumers who are involved in church just on our own terms as long as it suits us. And maybe if someone upsets us, we'd rather just move to another church than sort it out. And also in our culture, we tend to be very quick to run to the law. We're in a litigious culture, aren't we? We cry foul when we feel hard done by. But Paul says that we should try and resolve disputes within the family of faith rather than go running to outsiders. And the reason he gives for that is that the holy will judge the world. The holy will judge the world. He tells them in the verses that follow two things that they ought to know. Did you spot that? as Peter read for us. Verse 2, he says, Don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And verse 3, Don't you know that we will judge angels? 
he's appealing to the Old Testament teaching of Daniel 7, which says that the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Jesus himself spoke in Matthew 19 about the disciples sitting on 12 thrones to judge. We mustn't judge outsiders in this present age, but on the last day it seems that we will have a role in judging the world and even judging angels. And so we ought to be able to find people competent to sort out disputes within the church, even here and now. Let's pick up in verse 4. Paul says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. What kind of witness is it to the outside world when tr Christians drag each other to court? That's especially the case when it's whole churches brought before the authorities. Maybe at a fairly trivial level, the church member who falls and injures themselves in church and then their lawyer um, lodges a complaint against the church rather than sorting out as between brothers and sisters. But sometimes, very sadly, it's much bigger and more public, like the legal debates that have been going on, the disputes in North America, Passage, uh, parishes who have been taken to court because they can't go along with the changing teaching of their denomination. We hope and pray that we won't see similar things in the Church of England, not least because of the impact on our witness before the watching world. So we should try to sort out disputes between ourselves. Now that will require trust and integrity, won't it, within the church. There's real potential for this going wrong, for churches to try and cover up scandals to protect their reputation rather than sorting out problems. That's what happens with a number of sexual abuse scandals in churches over the last few years. Ironically, it's led to much worse witness uh, than um, if they'd uh, been transparent from the start. And despite Paul's language here about the unjust, he doesn't want us to disrespect secular courts. In other places, he tells us to honour governing authorities and to pray for them. He just wants us not to wash our dirty linen in public, but to resolve disputes within the family of faith. He goes on, he broadens it in verse 7 onwards. He goes on to say, don't act unjustly. Don't act unjustly. And first he speaks to the person who's taking a brother to court, the person who feels wronged. And he says in verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, the culture of Corinth sounds so similar to our culture today. We want to insist on our rights. We're quick to cry foul and to run to the courts to get justice. But Paul says that's not the ultimate priority. 
It's not always wrong to, to seek justice, but sometimes it's better to be wronged, to be treated unjustly. It's that same root word again. Just remember, didn't Jesus tell his disciples to turn the other cheek? Wasn't Jesus himself willing to be treated unjustly for our sakes? I just love what Peter says about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God's. He says, to this you were called because Christ <coughs> suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When, he, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Sometimes it's right to turn the other cheek. Again, let me caveat that. We're not saying it's always wrong to seek justice here and now. Especially if we're in a situation of danger or abuse, it can be essential to ask for help. And sometimes that will be from secular authorities. Paul himself appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. But there's enough here in 1 Corinthians 6, as well as in the teaching and the example of Jesus, to make us just pause for thought before we go insisting on our rights here and now. Sometimes it's better to suffer unjustly. Sometimes by pursuing a verdict, we've been completely defeated already. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Sometimes the only winner is the devil. So that's what he says to the person who feels wronged. And then in verse 8, he wants us to admit where we're the guilty party ourselves. Verse 8, he says, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. You act unjustly. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. They not only do wrong, but they do it to their own Christian family. And again, Paul gives them a reason based on something they should have known. In verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the wrongdoers, the unjust, will not inherit the kingdom of God? There is justice on the last day. And whilst the world is mixed up between sinners and saints today, and our brothers and sisters act wrongly towards us and we towards one another, we need to be clear about what we will see on the last day. We must act justly now because the unjust won't inherit the kingdom. <coughs> he lists some of the sorts of things he has in mind. Just like today, so in Corinth, the most obvious illustrations of sin are often to do with sex or money. Verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the unjust won't inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now the things in this list are just examples. There are other things that he could have said. Um, he repeats some things that he's already listed in chapter 5. He adds some new things in here as well. But his basic point is that these sorts of things don't belong among the holy. Now it might be that that list provokes all sorts of questions and maybe objections. We might be happy to see some of the things on the list. We might be appalled to see other things on that list. In particular, it's shocking today, isn't it, in our culture to see men who have sex with men named as something that doesn't belong in the kingdom. Paul's going to go on next week to talk about sexual sin in more detail. And the reasons why the Bible says that the right place for sex is between a man and a woman in marriage. So please read on and come back next week. We'll talk about these things a bit more next week. All I want to say now is that this list refers to actions rather than desires. That's really important. We might want sexual immorality like adultery or like gay sex or uh, last week we saw uh, 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 sex with our father's wife or any number of different things. But Christians mustn't act on those desires. In the second half of the list, we might have a craving for money or for alcohol or for something else. But it's the savouring of that desire and acting on it that's incompatible with being God's holy people. All of us are sinners in one way or another. We all have fallen desires of one kind or another. We're all different. We each will, will struggle in different ways to different degrees with different things on that list. But as we come back to the view of the world that we started with, we don't get from the unjust to the holy by our own effort, by resisting wrong temptations, by living holy lives. It can't be done. That's what's wonderful about the last verse of our Bible passage. Just look at the good news, the wonderful news of verse 11. He talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were, he says. Some of us were the sexually immoral, were the adulterous, were drunkards, were swindlers. But that is not what defines us now if we're Christian people. We've been given a new identity. Our identity isn't pinned to those things that belong to the old life. 
When we come to Jesus Christ, we become God's holy people. That's why the thrust of all of this teaching is live out your holiness. When someone becomes a Christian, they're transferred from the unjust to the holy. Verse 11 describes that in three ways. It says you were washed. That is, we were cleansed entirely from all the sins of the past, symbolised by the washing of baptism. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were set apart from this broken world by the holy God to join his holy people. You were justified. You were made just. You were taken out of the unjust world and put in right standing with God the judge. These verbs all describe what God has done for us and in us and to us. In fact, the three persons of the Trinity are all involved. The Father has washed us and made us holy and made us just in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And that's what makes us utterly distinct from the world around us. That's our new identity in Christ. Even while we might look and sound exactly like we did before, there's a sharp division in this verse, verse 11. In Greek, there are two words for but, and this ver verse uses the stronger one actually three times. They're not carried through in our translation, but literally it reads, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. A complete break with our old lives. We are no longer what we were when we become Christian people. <coughs> And so the sins of the past are utterly unfitting for us now. They belong with our old identity as the unjust. Now we've been taken into God's holy people. And so those old sins just have no place anymore. That new identity and that new destiny has no place. Um, sorry, that new identity and that new destiny is the gift of God in Jesus Christ. I know that there are people here and no doubt watching online who would say, I haven't yet received that gift. I know that I'm still living in the old realm of the unjust. Maybe I'm trying to live towards that right-hand end of the spectrum, but it's not working. I'm realising that it's not enough. Can I urge you to receive the gift of washing, of sanctification, of justification? It comes through Jesus Christ crucified. <coughs> if you're not sure what that means, or how to get it. Please speak to me or to a faithful Christian friend afterwards. 
Or better still, sign up for that Christianity Explored course that I mentioned earlier. We would love to help you grasp what is on offer as a free gift to each of us in Jesus Christ. There's no more important thing than making sure of where you stand on the last day. And for the rest of us, those who call ourselves brothers and sisters, can you see the challenge of this passage? And in fact, the challenge of the whole of the New Testament to live consistently with our new identity. Sin has no place among us. Live out your holiness. Let me read those last few verses again and then I'll lead us in prayer. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. <coughs> our Father God, please show us how to see the world as you see it. We pray, dear Lord God, that we will grasp that basic distinction that when we receive the gift of Jesus Christ you transfer us from the world and give us a privileged place among your holy people. Please, Lord God, will you be transferring any who have not yet received that gift who are among us or known to us and we pray, our Father God, that you will give us the strength, the conviction, the desire to live as your holy people, to say no to sin and unrighteousness, to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters, to be witnesses to the watching world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to say, some of this teaching is hard, isn't it? And as I'm speaking, I realise that there'll be individuals among us, maybe following online, for whom this is all very personal. Please don't just walk out those doors and not come back. If you're wrestling with it, please share your burdens. If you think I'm wrong, come and talk to me. Please come back next week as we see some of the underpinning of these things a bit further. And let's pray that the Lord would show us how he looks at the world and how we're to live as his people. Thank you, Gabriel.